So welcome everybody to our second session of the term. Um, so today it's a great pleasure to welcome Ben Sachs from St Andrews. Ben, as you know, has worked on several areas of political philosophy and ethics, including applied issues, animal ethics, environmental ethics, and so on. He's currently writing a series of papers about contractarianism, of which this is one. So he's going to talk to us today about contractarianism as a political morality. Ben, thank you. Thanks, and thanks everybody for coming to this. Really eager to hear your feedback on this whole contractarianism thing that I'm working on. Um, so, um, so contractarianism um, sort of burst onto the scene um, as what I call a sort of a moral analog of a scientific theory of everything. Um, the context was 17th century Europe. I'm thinking of Hobbes here, um, which was a really which was a really bloody century. Um, everything seemed up for grabs. And it seemed like there was a place for some philosophical theory that could explain how people could get along and live in peace with each other, despite disagreeing about many fundamentally important things, um, having different backgrounds, um, and different know, moral beliefs, et cetera, et cetera. And so contractarianism was put forward to fill that void. Um, but contractarianism eventually lost a lot of its favor. And my diagnosis of that is that, first of all, times changed. Uh, there, came, there came a more peaceful time in Europe. And um, also, new philosophical ideas came to the fore, ideas like human rights and the moral equality of persons. And some of these ideas seemed to do the job that contractarianism was supposed to do, but do, them, do that job a little bit better. Um, so, so contractarianism sort of fell by the wayside for a pretty long time. And then finally, John Rawls revived it uh, in the 1970s. Um, and that was a very, his theory of justice was very influential, very influential use of contractarianism. Um, but then, of course, he began to face his critics. Uh, most prominent of them, in my eyes, is G.A. Cohen, who leveled some pretty devastating objections against his view. So that's my, that's my potted history of contractarianism, and it sets the stage for where I come in. Um, so I, I come from the perspective of somebody who's attracted to contractarianism but thinks that the standard objections to it are good ones. Um, so what I want to do is show that contractarianism can still be useful, but only if it's construed as a political morality. So that's my thesis. Um, my plan is to start with contractarianism as sort of a moral theory of everything, and then pare away the unappealing layers till we get down to contractarianism as a political morality. So I'm gonna, but before doing that, of course, I'm gonna explain what contractarianism is. So I'm gonna explain what contractarianism is. I'm gonna reject it as a theory of legitimacy, 
I'm going to reject it then as a theory of interpersonal morality. I'm going to reject it then as a theory of justice. All of that will happen quite quickly. Unfortunately, that's just the nature of this. It's, it'll be more, I'd like to spend more time on what I hope is more interesting and more new to you, which would be the idea of contractarianism as a political morality. So the, the, the initial parts will be probably be frustratingly brief and will fail to cover a lot of essential details, but that's, that's how it has to be. So I'm gonna clear away the unappealing versions of contractarianism and then hone in on contractarianism as a political morality, explain the motivation for it, and respond to objections to it. Um, so this is all sort of by way of clearing space for contractarianism as a political morality. It's not an argument for it, though. Um, so, all right, first thing I'm, I've promised to do is to explain what contractarianism is. So I define contractarianism this way. It's, a, it's any theory that has the following two features. One, a state of nature thought experiment. So a state of nature thought experiment is an invitation to consider what might happen if there were a group of rational beings who conceived of themselves as facing a choice. Either live in the state of nature or don't. Uh, the state of nature, I'm just going to stipulate, is a situation in which there are no generally effective checks on the behavior of rational beings, either because people have moral disagreements or maybe they agree on morality, but they're too self-interested to abide by it or whatever. Um, okay, so, th so it, it's, a, it's, a, it's an invitation to consider what would happen if rational beings found themselves confronted with that choice. That's the first element of a contractarian theory. The second element of a contractarian theory is contracting as the answer to the question that the state of nature thought, ex thought experiment poses. So the question is, what would happen if rational beings confronted themselves with such a choice, were confronted with such a choice? The answer, an answer is they would contract out of it so as to, they would, they would form a contract, create a contract, so as to ensure that they didn't have to live in the state of nature. So that's it, that's contractarianism. Um, the question that that leaves out, what, I, what, I've, what I've intentionally left ambiguous or just un, unanswered is what question is that supposed to answer? You might think that's an interesting thought experiment, that's an interesting answer, but what is it to be applied to? What actual moral question is it supposed to be applied to? Well, that's what the rest of the talk is going to be about. So, you could, so the question could be put this, the contents of the contract, whatever they would be, what question do they answer? What, what moral question do they, are they purported to settle? So the first, ans the first possible answer is that they're supposed to ground um, a theory of legitimacy. They're supposed to explain under what circumstances and why rational beings would be obligated to allow a state to sort of boss them around? Why would they be obligated to obey the sovereign, the state? So this is how Hobbes and Locke, for instance, used contractarianism. Um, now, the, the problems with contractarianism as a theory of legitimacy have been really nicely covered um, by people like Ronald Dworkin and Gene Hampton and others. So I'm just going to rush through this. 
here are the problems. Um, you have to you have to say what the relation is between this hypothetical contract and the real world. Because we are real, we are real people who are living under the thumb of real states. So we're so, something about this has to be applicable to us in order to count as a theory of legitimacy. So how, where's the applicability? Um, one is that this contracting is the truth as a matter of history. So sometime way back, there actually was some contracting. I'm not sure how many people have actually believed this. Locke, maybe. Um, I, can't think, I can't even name another person. The, the problem with this is, is, you know, Hume pointed it out. Um, it's just not a true history, um, at least for, if not for every currently existing state, for almost every currently existing state, which is just as bad. So it just, that just never happened. There, actually, there was no contracting to get out of the state of nature and get into a political society. The second possibility is that we are, we are contracting right now. Well, all right, nobody said, nobody, I mean, that's obviously not true, but we could say we are consenting right now. So we'd have to use contractarianism a bit loosely so that the word contract isn't taken too seriously. It wouldn't be so much contracting as consenting, so we could call it consentarianism, but whatever, I'm not gonna worry about that. So, so we move from history to present day and we say, no, it's happening right now. We're consenting right now. And the objection is that, no, we're not. We're not even being invited to register our consent or dissent. We're just being told what to do. That seems like the more accurate picture of what's happening, of the relationship between us and our state. So it's just not the truth. The third possibility is that we are tacitly consenting. Uh, through, our, through our behavior, we express our consent. And then the fourth possibility is that we, are we, we would hypothetically consent. Given, under the, under the right circumstances, given the opportunity to consent, we would. Now, but I, I'm, grew, I, I'm running through these together because they both face the same problem, which is that neither tacit nor hypothetical consent has moral force. They're really philosophically interesting. You may be able to learn something really of value by considering what people would hypothetically consent to. I'm not sure you learn much of value by considering what people tacitly consent to. But anyway, there may be something of interest, philosophical interest to be learned from them. But what we're looking for is sort of morally a morally transformative action, something that can take the state's coercive behavior towards us, which is sort of prima facie objectionable, and make it OK. We're looking for a moral transformation. And plausibly, what you need for that is actual consent. Tacit or hypothetical consent doesn't do the trick. All right, so that's why I think we should reject contractarianism as a theory of legitimacy. Next, contractarianism as a theory of interpersonal morality, which is a, more, a much more 20th century use of contractarianism. Uh, the economist Harshani, I'm not not quite sure how to pronounce his name, H-A-R-S-A-N-Y-E, uh, Y-I. Um, David Godier, if these names ring a bell. Um, so what I mean by contractarianism as a theory of interpersonal morality is just what we would ordinarily call morality, just contractarianism as the theory that tells us how to treat each other. Um, all right, so one job that I think 
that I would insist every moral theory is supposed to do, every, every theory of interpersonal morality is supposed to do, is explain why the actions that are prohibited or required are prohibited or required. So, so a, moral, a moral theory has an explanatory job to do. It's not just sorting and categorizing. It's, 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 giving, it's explaining the why. It's telling us why we ought to do what we ought to do. Um, now, what does contractarianism say about why we ought to do the things that, as an interpersonal morality, it would be telling us we ought to do? Well, the idea would be that you ought to do X because the X is in the content of the contract. This contract, this hypothetical contract that you would arrive at, you know, to escape the state of nature. Okay, so, so the contract requires X, and that explains why you ought to X. Now, this is a purely impersonal explanation of why one ought to X. It mentions you, the agent, so, but that's, of course, because it's supposed to be giving instructions to you, but it doesn't mention anybody else. So this leads to a problem, which is that whatever explanatory story a moral theory tells, that implies certain facts, all the facts, about wronging. So wronging is a phenomenon that I don't think it's plausible to deny. Wronging is a thing that happens. Wrong, wronging is just wrongdoing with a vector, a direction. It's wrongdoing that isn't just done, but done to someone, and someone in particular. So it has both a perpetrator and a victim. And the victim, when, when you are a victim of wronging, you have grounds for resentment. You're the appropriate person to apologize to. You may given other conditions, find it in your heart to forgive. So all these phenomena, which I don't think we can just wipe, just wipe off the moral map as imaginary, all these phenomena are related distinctly to wronging, not just wrongdoing. So we need to account for wronging. And the way we account for that is by telling the right kind of explanatory story about why the things that are wrong are wrong. But if the explanatory story we tell is impersonal, we cannot say that any instances of wrongdoing are wronging because we need to identify a victim. So if I say that the reason it was wrong of you to X is because it violated the contract, that doesn't pick out anybody as the victim of your Xing. Or just as bad, it picks out every party to the contract as a victim of your Xing, which is totally implausible when you think of things like rape, which definitely have one particular person as the victim. Um, so, so, I, so the problem with contractarianism as, as an interpersonal morality is that it, it can't countenance wronging. It just, wipes, it just wipes wronging off the map. All right, that's it. That's it for contractarianism as a theory of interpersonal morality. What about contractarianism as a theory of justice, the way, the way Rawls used it? So I'm just going to repeat what G.A. Cohen said and say it's true. I just think he's right, okay? So he launched two criticisms against contractarianism as a theory of justice. One is called the fact sensitivity criticism. So um, Cohen assumes that what Rawls was intending to provide was a fundamental theory of justice, that Rawls was trying to identify the fundamental truths about justice, which I think is fair. Um, now, plausibly, the fundament, any fundamental moral truth will be fact-insensitive. 
Um, so in any possible, another, another way to put this is whatever the fundamental moral truths are, they hold in all possible worlds. You could look at it that way. And this is just sort of the, sort of the shadow of the old independence of the moral view that we get from David Hume, that you can't get an ought from an is. So this all ties together. Anyway, the basic picture is whatever the fundamental moral truths are, they don't depend on the facts. But, Rawl, but Rawls's principles of justice do depend on the facts. They are agreed upon in light of what the, who the, con, uh, what the contractors know about their circumstances. They're in, for instance, they're in the circumstances of justice, moderate scarcity, et cetera. Um, various sort of laws of human nature. They actually know quite a lot. It's, I mean, what they don't know is often sort of given more attention because of the veil of ignorance, but they actually know a lot. Um, so this is all very fact sensitive. And so it can't yield fundamental principles of justice. That's the fact sensitivity critique. Uh, then there's something that the best expression, I call it the more than justice critique. So um, if you found yourself in Rawls's original position uh, and you were, you're, you're, what you're assigned to do is pick the pick some principles to, to, to govern the basic structure of society. Well, you've got to live in this basic structure. This is, your, this is your life that's on the line. So you've got to think of everything you care about. And plausibly, you care about a lot more than justice. You care about aesthetic beauty. You care about just sort of brute well-being, even those elements of well-being that are sort of excessive and don't have anything to do with justice. Um, you care about a lot of things. And so plausibly, you would design principles to cater to a lot of things, not just justice. So what so what what Cohen says is that what you get out of the contractarian thought experiments are sort of interesting principles, but not plausibly principles of justice per se. Um, so I, anyway, so th those are the two objections. I think they're quite good. Um, so so I'm just gonna I'm just gonna move on from contractarianism as a theory of justice. So. Now I'm just going to spend the rest of the time here talking about contractarianism as a political morality. Um, so as a first pass, here's an idea. Contractarianism is a theory of what the state, all things considered, morally ought to do. Now, that might sound daft in light of what Cohen just said. I mean, it's not. It sounds, it sounds sort of obviously vulnerable to Cohen's objections. So I, it's going to need some revising, but it's a first pass at what I think contractarianism should be. Specifically, the, the worry of Cohen's that it's obviously going to run into is the more than justice critique. So how can, how can, a, how can this state of nature thought experiment, what, 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 sort of, what would you sort of choose to contract out to have some sort of political sovereign entity do if you found yourself choosing, trying to avoid the state of nature? Well, plausibly, again, you would, you would care about a lot of things, not just justice. So now I'm not proposing that contractarianism should be a theory of justice. I'm proposing that it should be a theory of morality, all things what the state morally ought to do, all things considered. But how can that be settled all in one fell swoop when morality plausibly is sort of a an umbrella for lots of distinct kind of concerns. Isn't that all getting lost? You might see that as sort of the fundamental part of 
Cohen's critique. Cohen could have leveled basically the same critique against contractarianism as a theory of any one thing. Um, so, so that would be the sort of obvious objection that I would confront if I were to propose that contractarianism is a theory of what the state ought to do, all things considered. Uh, but here's my rejoinder. Um, so what I think a contractarian should do is in addition to adopting contractarianism as a theory of what the state morally ought to do, all things considered, a contractarian also ought to adopt some other theory of interpersonal morality, specifically one that concedes, for instance, that there are, that there are obligations of justice. So, so that would be the first move to make. The second move to make would be to assert that the state is bound by interpersonal morality. Now, neither of these first two moves is ad hoc. I mean, if contractarianism isn't the correct theory of interpersonal morality, which I just got done arguing it isn't, well, surely there is some true theory of interpersonal morality. We now don't know what it is, but it's out there somewhere. So why can't the contractarian assent to it? So I, in other words, what I'm saying is you can be a contractarian without, only being, a con without being only a contractarian. So, as, so you, the contractarian, or I, the contractarian, should just take on board whatever the true theory of interpersonal morality is and say that the state is bound by it. The state, I, I think states are agents. If you don't like the metaphysics of that, that's actually absolutely fine. It's not important. What you can say instead is that states are entities through which flesh and blood agents exercise their agency. So I'm thinking of legislators, judges, bureaucrats. So whether the state is an agent or whether it's an entity through which other agents exercise their agency, either way, it makes total sense to say that the state is bound by the requirements of interpersonal morality. And it, gets, and it, and it sort of helps us to explain some of the things that states are obligated to do, like not launch wars of aggression. I think, I think the explanation as to why we think states shouldn't launch wars of aggression is just, it's just, it's just interpersonal morality. It's just ordinary morality, right? Don't kill people except in self-defense. That's just ordinary morality. That's why states shouldn't launch wars of aggression. Okay, so I think that, so so far I think this is all, I hope it doesn't sound ad hoc at all. I think it's quite sensible when you think about it. Um, so, so now here's the, here's the third move that sort of brings it all together. What we should say is that contract, although contractarianism doesn't tell us what the state qua agent, the state as an agent ought to do. Interpersonal morality tells us that. It tells us what the state as a state ought to do. In other words, contractarianism gives us the role morality for the state. So the state, to be a state is to fill a role, and there's a morality that goes along with that. And that's what I'm proposing contractarianism should be. And that officially is my thesis. So I'm now discarding the earlier thing I said, that contractarianism is a theory of what the state morally ought to do, all things considered. No, now I'm saying the state, contractarianism is a theory about what the state morally ought to do qua state, all things considered. Now, how does this disarm Cohen's criticism? Well, if we imagine that rational agents find themselves confronting a choice between living in the state of nature or not, we can imagine them being concerned 
about a whole range of things, none of which, and there, and there might be an irreducible plurality of these things that they, that they might be concerned about. So in saying that contractarianism yields a set of all things considered obligations, that sort of derivative, it's sort of already taking into account the fact that morality can be broken down into several different areas of concern. It's just saying that the contractors themselves would find the balance that they think is right. So, so the sort of so the sort of the pluralism objection I think can be handled that way. And as to justice specifically, well, again, I think justice is an aspect of morality. You and I all have duties of justice to each other. So if we want to explain why the state has duties of justice, we don't need to look any further than the claim that the state is an agent. So the state has duties of justice for the same reason you and I do. And contractarianism should not be used to figure out what those duties of justice are. Our ordinary methods of reasoning about interpersonal morality should be used, to, just like Cohen would say, ordinary methods of moral reasoning should be used to figure out what the duties of justice are. And then we can just say, well, the state has those duties because it's an agent. Um, so I want to get, so really quick, just to explain a little bit of why, con so I, basically all I've done so far is sort of clear space for contractarianism to, to sort of identify an agenda for it and an agenda that makes it not vulnerable to Cohen's objections and also not vulnerable to the other objections. I just don't have time to explain, go through every one. But I haven't explained why it's any good as a political morality. I've just sort of explained that it could be a political morality and not face certain objections. But why think it's any good? Let's not really, I mean, so my agenda here isn't to argue for it, but just to give sort of a hint, a bit of a motivation, think of it this way. Political morality is the role morality for the state. Now, a role is an element in a social system, right? That's how roles are defined. Roles are defined by reference to systems in which they play a part. Now, systems are human constructions. I mean, we can think of, I guess there are, there are some natural systems, but I don't really think there are natural systems that yield roles. So forget about natural systems. Syst what we have in mind here, what we need to think about here are human, you know, systems that are constructed by rational agents. So si rational agents don't construct systems by accident. And systems don't arise as side effects, as mere side effects for other things that we do. No, systems are created intentionally. And intentional actions always have a purpose. So I think we should say that social systems, every social system has a purpose. And so in order to, and this makes it plausible to think that in order to understand what a role is and what the morality appropriate to that role is, you have to understand the broader purpose of the system of which it's a part and the, the purpose of that particular role in the system. So bringing this to the state, I think we should think of... Um, I think we should think of states as social systems. That should be uncontroversial. Um, 
And I think, so we should think of states having purposes. And contractarianism is really well placed to give us some insight into what the purpose of the state might be, and therefore what the role morality of the state might be. And the reason is that contractarianism forces us to think about why we have states as opposed to not. Because contractarianism begins with a state of nature thought experiment, which is just an invitation to think, hey, what if a bunch of rational beings thought about, this, thought about these two options, live in the state of nature or don't? Um, so, so I think when you engage in this, when you, when you engage in the thought experiment that contractarians engage in, you're naturally gonna get to some conclusion about what the purpose of the state is. And once you have some idea about what the purpose of the state is, you're naturally gonna be able to get the role morality of the state, i.e. The, the, the true political morality, whatever it is. So that's, that's sort of the motivation for contractarianism as a political morality. Um, so I wanna spend the rest of my time um, responding to four objections to contractarianism as a political morality. So one of them is just, contra is just Cohen's more than justice objection reconsidered. Um, so again, I, I'm repeating myself here, but Cohen was worried that, um, that contractarian thought experiments try to settle in one fell swoop something that really is a multifactorial thing. And I want to say they do settle it in one fell swoop, but that one swoop is a really complicated swoop. It's a swoop that invites us to think about contractors deciding whether to live in the state of nature or not, and think about all the things that they would be concerned about, possibly an irreducible plurality of things, if that's, if that's a plausible reflection of human psychology, and to think about how they would propose to strike the balance between all, that, all those plural things that they care about. So that's how we get sort of the pluralism in there while at the same time getting as a result this all things considered political morality, this all things considered set of facts about what the state is obligated to do qua state. The second objection is the fact sensitivity objection. So, um, so Cohen, we can imagine Cohen saying, look, Ben, I don't, it doesn't matter that you're no longer using contractarianism to get the facts about justice. Your problem, the, ba the basic problem still exists. You're using contractarianism to get, the to get the fundamental facts about something. And because contractarianism uses this thought experiment, which is, fact, which is a fact-sensitive thought experiment, it's not well-positioned to yield the fundamental facts about any moral matter. And that would include, of course, political morality, which is what I think we should use contractarianism for. So presumably there are some fundamental facts of political morality. I would be making kind of a weak proposal if I was saying that contractarianism could get us the derivative facts of political morality, but no, the, not the fundamental ones. No, I am saying it can get us the fundamental facts of political morality, whatever they are. But Cohen's gonna say, no, it obviously can't because it's all based on this fact, on this fact-laden thought experiment. So the key, so my, my response is gonna be a bit long-winded, but here's the headline. The key, the key point here is that there's no reason we should expect 
the foundational principles of political morality, whatever they are, to be foundational, strictly speaking. So remember, I said that political morality is role morality. Now, role morality, wherever you find it, there are lots of different role moralities for different roles, but role morality, wherever you find it, is not foundational. Because role morality is an outgrowth of ordinary morality. So think of, think of the role morality that it, so here's, a, so here's one kind of role that I think we all agree has its own morality, being an attorney. So think of, think of being an attorney. So one, one principle of the role morality of an attorney is to act in the best interests of your client. Um, and I think plausibly we could say that that is a foundational principle of the role morality of an attorney. It's hard to think of anything that we expect of attorney qua attorney that could ground that. That seems like, that seems fundamental. Act in the best interests of your client. So that's foundational within the role morality of being an attorney. But it's not foundational, strictly speaking, because think of how we arrived at that. Well, we arrived at that by, by creating this thing called the adversarial justice system and creating this role within the adversarial justice system known as the attorney and thinking, well, if, it's gonna play the, if attorneys are going to play the role that they would need to play to make the adversarial justice system work, they'd have to act in the best interests of their client. And attorneys, you know, individuals who occupy roles in social systems should do whatever it is their role to do. And that's how we got to this principle of acting in the best interests of your client. But notice that one of the principles we deployed in there was this perfectly general moral principle that individuals should do what it's their role to do. That's not a principle of role morality. That's just a principle of morality full stop, of what, I, you might, of what I've been calling interpersonal morality. So all of role morality is, paris, is grounded in a principle of ordinary morality. You should do whatever it is your role to do. And, and actually, there are other principles of foundational morality that are needed. I mean, we have to appeal, we have to, appeal to we, in order to justify the, even the having of an adversarial justice system, we have to appeal to ordinary morality. Why should we have that justice system as opposed to no justice system or a different kind of justice system? So this is all an outgrowth of ordinary morality and all hopefully justifiable in its lights. So. So what I want to say is that contractarianism will indeed be fact-sensitive and non-foundational. It'll be fact-sensitive because it'll be based on this state of nature thought experiment, which brings in facts about what the state of nature would be like and what the psychological profile of the contractors would be like and what, and what they know about the world and all that. Um, and it'll be non-foundational. It'll be grounded in more fundamental principles, principles of role morality, principles that tell us why there should be role morality, and specifically why there should be this thing called the state. Um, so that's my answer to, to the Cohen's fact sensitivity objection. The third objection I want to consider is skepticism about the idea that you can have a theory serve as a plausible political morality without it also being a plausible theory of legitimacy. So I, I'm, I'm standing here saying that contractarianism is plausible as a political morality, but not plausible as a theory of legitimacy. And you might think that if it, if it you might think that if it's not the latter, then it can't be the former. And here's why you might think that. Um, and I wrote, I wrote a four premise argument on your handout, so you can follow along here. Premise one. Um, a 
political morality tells us what the state is obligated to do. It's true by definition. Premise two, whatever one is obligated to do, one is permitted to do. Premise three, whatever one is permitted to do, others are not, are not permitted to prevent one from doing. Premise, uh, therefore, political morality yields certain conclusions about which of the state's actions we are not permitted to resist. That's from one through three put together. And then from, from premise four, we just get the, we can make a further inference that a political morality yields a theory of legitimacy just based on sort of the, the assumption that what we mean by a theory of legitimacy is a, a theory that tells us which of the state's actions we're not permitted to resist. Um, so so, this, is, so this, this looks problematic for me. But I have two responses. One, I, I think premise two is false. Now that's, that's a whole other thing that's just about more, that's just about sort of kind of a vaguely meta-ethical kind of thing that would be totally out of place for me to get into in this talk. So I'm, I'm, not, gonna, I'm not gonna rest on that. I'm just gonna move, I happen to think premise two is false, but I don't expect you to grant that to me. So, okay, moving on. Here's something we can talk about. I think that this, world, this word yields, which we see in, four, in premise four in the conclusion is ambiguous. Um, I think what we get from premises one through three, it, premise four is true if by yields we mean sort of logically implies, logically entails. If that's what we mean by yields, then premise four is, is you know, that does represent a sound inference or valid inference from, from the premises. But it's simply not the case that a theory counts as a political morality if it logically implies facts about what we are, what we are required to let the state do. A, political, uh, a theory of legitimacy grounds or explains whatever the facts are about what we are required to allow the state to do. So, I think the most you can get out of this is just to say that a political morality and a, I think the most you can get out of this of the first three premises here are the conclusion that a political morality and a theory of legitimacy are th legitimacy sort of bear inferential relations to each other. They're not logically independent. I, I accept that. Um, but I don't think a political mor morality grounds a theory of legitimacy. Um, you know, if anything, I think something closer to the opposite is true. Um, I think that a theory of legitimacy is plausibly, could plausibly be seen as constraining political morality. We might think, what, I mean, so one thing that we get out of a theory of legitimacy is certain claims about what the state may not do. Um, and I think it's plausible to think that we can't obligate the state to do anything that it may not do. So I kind of, I kind of want to reverse premises two and three in a way. But that's, that's an issue for another time. It's not really essential to my argument. Anyway, the bottom line is whatever, whatever you might get out of this argument that I wrote on your handout, you don't get the idea that a theory of political morality grounds a theory of legitimacy. So we don't have to worry about contractarianism having to do double duty as both a political morality and a theory of legitimacy. It can, do just, it can be just a political morality and nothing else. Um, 
So the final, the final objection, and this is sort of by way of conclusion, the final objection is that this is a Pyrrhic victory for contractarianism. Because the way I've sketched things out, there's so much of moral substance that's going to be settled not by contractarianism. I've, I've yielded so much ground to other theories. Um, so by way of response, I want to say that to a certain extent this is true, and I'm not ashamed of it. I don't think contractarians should be ashamed of it. I just think we should, be, we should feel good about helping ourselves to anything from outside contractarianism that's found a solid philosophical footing. So if theories of human rights and the moral equality of persons are philosophically solid and answer important moral questions about the relationship between us and the relationship between you and I and the relationship between us and the state, then let's take that on board. Even as contractarians, let's just help ourselves to it unabashedly. Um, but I think that there are certain moral questions that are distinctly about what we want the state to do, what the role of the state is. And these questions can't be settled by appeal to interpersonal morality nor can they simply be left to the democratic process. What I have in mind roughly are constitutional matters. So for instance, should the state enforce morality? Should there be an established state religion? Should the state be in the business not just of serving the interests of humans, but also serving the interests of animals? Should there be judicial review checking the democratic power of the people? I think to answer any of these questions, it would be useful to know what the role of the state is. That would seem like an obvious starting point. And we remember, these are constitutional essentials. These are questions that none of us would think it's appropriate to settle through the democratic process. I think we would all agree it's not appropriate to settle such questions through the democratic process. This is all prior to that. These are constitutional essentials, and I think it's plausible to think that having a grip on what the role of the state is, what it's there for, would be a good starting point. And contractarianism is in a good position to identify what the role of the state is. And thus, indirectly, it's in a good position to answer all of those questions that I just laid out. And that's where I'll end. Thank you. <laughs>